Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. As we continue to have these conversations about philosophy and theology, I am aware of a general complaint about the disciplines themselves, which is that they are not practical or don't pertain to any real day-to-day running of our lives. You guys haven't heard this critique, have you, J.P. Stan? Oh, never. Uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> never. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I thought so. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I decided we might, after 20 episodes, need something of a case study to practice mm-hmm. applying some of these things Stan, J.P., and I have been discussing. So we're going to do that with an example from history. This is another human person, just like you and me, that lived a life that is still rippling through our times with as much relevance as ever. The bonus is that Stan and JP are familiar with the scholarly endeavors of this individual, but not so much with the story of his life. So Stan and JP are humoring me to allow them to (laughs) go on this learning journey about this man and his friends. So let's go ahead and dive in. Okay. If you've been paying attention to Christian popular works in the past 10 to 15 years, you may have come across the word embodied or embodiment. As we discussed in previous episodes, enlightenment thinking tended to distance a person's mind from their body. So the greatest consequences of this philosophy were an absolute disaster culminating in some of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. When you see a human being as just a body, it's much simpler to dehumanize them. However, There was a scholarly resistance that elevated the importance of the first-person experience as a central way of approaching the sciences. So the field of phenomenology is one of the results of that resistance. Phenomenology is the study of experience as it's lived. So I like the way um, Alcoholics Anonymous describes life on life's terms. Phenomenology could be said to be the exploration and study of life on life's terms. So we've talked about the great Dallas Willard quote that reality is what you bump into when you're wrong. It's similar to that kind of ethos. The undisputed father of phenomenology is a man named Edmund Husserl. He lived from 1859 to 1938. And many historians and philosophers have made the staggering statement that Husserl profoundly influenced all philosophy going forward in the Western world. That's a staggering statement and relatively undisputed, actually. Husserl's work deeply influenced the likes of both Sigmund Freud and Pope John Paul II, uh, John Paul Sartre, and St. Edith Stein, Martin Heidegger, and Dallas Willard. There is, however, a good chance you've never heard of him. As a Jew born in Austria-Hungary, his incredibly important works were almost lost to history during the Nazi era. Some faithful people risked their lives so that we would be able to have access to his work and ideas. So our goal today is to tell you who this Husserl man was and also to help guide your imagination to how God can use a person to change the way we engage with the world he made. I think it's going to be a really good time. Looking forward to it. He was born in Moravia, which is a crown land within the Austrian Empire at the time of Husserl's birth. It became part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire after the Peace of Prague, which established a dual monarchy when Husserl was about seven years old. So it answered the German question in favor of Prussia. So Austria, where he 
was geographically, was now excluded from Germany and no longer a top German power. So when Husserl was born, the world around him was shifting in some pretty major ways that would, again, have ripple effects through the 20th century and ongoing even. He was from a comfortable Jewish family in the community of Prosnitz. It was a mostly Slavic community with Jews and Germans as the minority. His family was comfortable, but civil law set specific economic age and educational requirements for Jews. So Edmund was the second born son. His options for staying within that community were limited, given all of those civil laws in place. This may have inspired Edmund's father, Adolf Abraham, to send him away from the local Jewish school to a school in Vienna. He was there for about a year, and then he transferred to um, a school that's now in the Czech Republic, which was quite a bit closer to home. He graduated in June of 1876, having been an unexceptional student Mm. With solid but unspectacular marks. He was nothing special at this point in time. (laughs) He left for the University of Leipzig with the intention of studying astronomy. This surprised actually quite a few of his teachers and classmates. They kind of thought that he would maybe uh, go into some sort of trade because he was not indicating to anyone that he was terribly bright. Mm. You guys both laugh. You know how this turns out. (laughs) During this time, Husserl met a man named Tomas Masaryk. And he was a Christian postdoctoral student who would become his lifelong friend. Thomas helped Edmund as a student in philosophy classes. And they were also together in a club that met often and talked about theology. At this time, Edmund was still a non-practicing Jew, but grew up in a heavily Jewish uh, environment. They also traveled together with these friends. In later letters, both Husserl and Masaryk mentioned these long-form conversations with fondness. In the middle of Husserl's time at Leipzig, Marisik fell seriously ill and was unable to continue his scholarly work for many months. Instead of this weakening the friendship with distance from daily life, Husserl regularly joined him on the daily walks recommended by his doctor. Husserl's wife would later write that these times were of great importance to Husserl as a man. Malvina's opinion is confirmed by Masaryk's letter to Husserl later, where he said, with you, I have always shown my true character, and therefore you are able to judge me well. It's important to remember that Masaryk had no reason to believe that he had befriended someone who would go on to be influential in the world of philosophy or really influential at all. Husserl wasn't even studying philosophy at the time. After three semesters, Husserl went to Berlin to study under Karl Weilstrauss, and he would later write that he hoped to do for philosophy what Weilstrauss had done for arithmetic, that is to set it on a single foundation. He then went on to become a student in Vienna, thinking a degree from Austria might increase his higher ability. He earned his doctoral degree with a purely mathematical dissertation on differential calculus. (laughs) He returned to the University of Berlin to assist uh, Weierstrass for a time and then completed a year of military service. Then he actually went back to Vienna, where Thomas Masaryk was now the Privadotzent, I believe is how you pronounce that. I just apologize to any of our German listeners. Masaryk made two life-changing introductions for Edmund. 
Uh, one was to Professor Franz Brentento. Brentano. Brentano, thank you, who inspired Husserl to engage in philosophy with rigorous precision, which suited his mathematical interest, but also with a first-person experiential approach, as in the natural sciences, which kindled a lifelong fire of curiosity. The second influential person that Masaryk introduced Husserl to was Jesus of Nazareth. Thomas Masaryk's personal faith helped Husserl through the threshold of faith in April of 1886. Now, it may well have been that the high philosophical arguments won Husserl over. But what is critical here, I think, is that it happened in the context of friendship mm. and mentorship, and also in the context of really great conversations. Also, students of 20th century history may recognize the name Thomas Marisak, and that would be because he was the founding president of Czechoslovakia and is widely revered as a man of great leadership and integrity in international history. My goodness. He is referred to in Czech and Slavic memory as the grand old man of Europe. Hmm. So here's the key idea. Surround yourself with thinking Christians. I have certainly seen this principle bear enormous fruit in my life, but I wanted to have a quick conversation about how it's borne out in yours. Hmm. I think for me, uh, I was a thinking young man. I was an unbeliever, but my major was physical chemistry. And I I just had a gifted mind. And I needed to be around Christians who thought about the nature of their faith and the support for why we believe in, in the faith. And so God was merciful. I, I joined a crusade staff 18 months after my conversion. And I, I found some people that were like that. And the ability, as you put it, uh, to, to have friendships with them, to have conversations, to be honest about your questioning and work together for answers, gave me a picture of what Christianity was. And it, it, that picture was that Doubts and questions are part of the Christian life. They're, they're, they're normal. You ought to have them if you're taking this seriously. And, and if that's the case, then we need to be thoughtful, uh, not courteous, but uh, full of thought. We, we need to be people that welcome that kind of honesty and that we're earnest in, in discovering answers to those kinds of uh Questions and interactions. And so that wasn't my own only source of uh, fellowship, but for there to be a subset that were willing to dive into this journey with me to try to know why I believed. And I had that my entire life now. It has been that kind of fellowship that has been extremely important to my growth as a Christian. And one final thing on this, it's, it, it saddens me that I would venture to say that 90% of uh, Christians in evangelical churches not only never get to experience this, but they don't even think that it's something they ought to experience. It's not even on their radar. And they're missing out, I think, on one important part of the faith in its richness. Hmm. Stan, what do you think about this? That's very similar to my experience. I can, today actually is an important day. It was 43 years ago today that I came to faith in Christ. And it was due to a, a young lady in my high school 
who spent a year answering my questions as an atheist and helped me realize there are good reasons to believe. And in addition, I saw changes in her life, which convinced me of the truth of the gospel as well. But from that relationship to my college experience with a gentleman who really built into me a love of the word and not just accepting something because somebody said it, but being committed to study the scriptures to understand what they actually say to UJP were the next main stake in the ground in terms of uh, the class I took with you that was <laughs> life-altering, oh. which introduced me to the world of philosophy and the broader set of issues that uh, have become quite important to me, to just countless people over the years, whether individuals or as we've moved around a lot, often small groups in my church community that really loved God deeply both with heart and mind. And uh, so, you know, I think back on these these folks God put in my life throughout those decades. It was the right person at the right time for the things that I needed to really uh, have somebody to help me grow. To your, your point in Jordan, I think God does work in community often. And some of it is us just being willing to look for those opportunities and take advantage of them. Uh, I remember, JP, I pestered you all the time, yeah. <laughs> wanting to take you to lunch and pick your brain on everything conceivable. And uh, and you probably got tired of it, but uh, and I benefit so much from it. Thank you. And I, well, and I uh, of course, have benefited from so many others as well in that way. And I do find that in most churches I've been in, there is a percentage of folks who are really interested in thinking about their faith in a serious way. We tend to find one another and either in a Sunday school class or reading group that we get in. That's been very meaningful to me to be in those type of groups that really help spur me on to love and good deeds. In fact, Jordan, you're in a reading group with me right now. We're doing just that. So uh, yeah, that's been my experience, certainly. Mm -hmm. JP, have we ever told you how Stan and I met? No, I'd love to hear that. We did this thing called a ministry spotlight at the church we were going to at the time. And I was a young mom, and that was the ministry that they were spotlighting that week. Do you remember this, Stan? Um, I don't remember this. This is one of my favorite stories. Okay. So I got up and I had felt a serious urgency that I needed to share this G.K. Chesterton quote. It's a good one. It's one of my favorites. And it's the one about how God makes every daisy separately. And, you know, how he doesn't rely on automatic necessity. Anyway, it's a beautiful quote. And afterwards, Stan came up to me and he said, so you read G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and you stuck out your hand and you said, I'm Stan. It's nice to meet you. That's so funny. Sometimes the littlest things like that, like, huh. Yeah. We read similar things. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty cool. That's a very relevant story. To, to our topic. Yeah, absolutely. So back to Husserl. On August 6th, 1887, he married Malvine Steinschneider, who had also grown up in the same community that he had, the daughter of a school teacher and leading Jewish scholar of his day. And Malvine followed Husserl into the Christian faith. A biographer says this about her. As his energetic and skilled wife, she was his indispensable support until death in all things of their daily life. She also attended her husband's lectures all the time and was very active in the conversations in their home that she was hosting over the years 
of visiting scholars and students and uh, the two of them really were such a force to be reckoned with which is kind of mm-hmm. cool how she used hospitality in that way well i hope yes uh, my wife hope is uh she's made my life possible mm-hmm. you don't go it alone that's for sure mm-hmm. yeah. As is true with my wife, she balances me in very important ways. I'd be way off the deep end. I don't know how many, how many ways if she wasn't keeping me kind of centered. <laughs> it's important. Very important. So in the autumn after his graduation, Husserl took up his duties in the philosophy department at Halle. And their three children, Elizabeth, who they called Ellie, and two sons, Gerhardt and Wolfgang, were born in Halle. There he would spend the following 14 years with no public salary, only lecture fees and fellowships without promotion, isolated, and exceptionally lonely. It was a really challenging time. I can't put too much emphasis on that. It really was a very challenging time for Husserl personally and for his family life. He wrote later of his years in Halle, I too had a difficult time when I was young. I suffered from long bouts of depression to the point of losing all my self-confidence. I also tried to consult a neurologist. It was largely due to my philosophical failure, which I only very late realized was a failure of contemporary philosophy, whose vagueness and seeming scientific nature I had to take credit for at first. I was kept in the trust of exemplary and respectable people, older colleagues. In the philosophical work, I decided to renounce all great goals and be happy if I was only there in the swamps of unfounded uncertainty, and there I could work out the smallest solid ground for myself. So I lived from desperation to desperation, from recovery to recovery, and finally, during the difficult 14 years of my time as a private lecturer in Halle, the logical investigations, which now gave me some stability and hope, were a beginning. 14 years. Mm. Wow. We do get reflections on how he coped with situations like this from the letters of his wife, Melvin. She writes, at that time... Husserl went daily to the orphanage in Halle and read the engraved inscription above the gate, the Psalm of Isaiah, those who wait for the Lord get new strength, which became his life motto. Mm-hmm. And you can still see this, actually. We'll link a photo in the show notes. He leaned on Christ through that difficulty. Yeah, you bet. And it's interesting to note that during this period, he wrote his logical investigations uh, JP, do you want to say a word about how important that work has been in the history of philosophy? They are quite simply a breathtaking pivot in the way philosophy was understood and practiced. Husserl is one of those people that didn't accept what everybody else accepted just because everybody else accepted it. And he really launched into a completely new direction. There's a lesson here, I think, for us as a, as a matter of practical application. It is easy. In fact, it's easier to, to drift in life, just to go along with things, to get in a routine. You come home from work and there's certain things you do, you know, when you have free time watching football or whatever it might be. Now, now those are good things. I'm not disputing that. But what they can do is they can be the lazy man's way of just drifting along with life in the crowd because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to turn around and you're going to walk in the opposite direction of uh, you know all these others you have to really think you you're going to go through times when you were going to say am i crazy here 
And why doesn't anybody else hold this? I mean, maybe I'm nuts, you know. Christians especially have got to be very, very careful that they learn to think for themselves under the authority of Scripture. And by think for themselves, they mean don't just accept things that you hear and through the culture, mm-hmm. from, from news or PBS or whatever it is, and accept it as gospel, especially if it contradicts common sense and if it contradicts your Christian understanding of things. Uh, dig your heels in and dedicate yourself to finding other ways of thinking about these problems apart from our secular neighbors think about them. Hmm. So in the time of Husserl, knowledge was limited to what could be scientifically quantified and, and tested with your five senses. And as a result of that, some, like John Stuart Mill, developed the idea that the laws of logic are just empirical generalizations. But the laws of logic are look, look like they're, something, they're necessary truths. I mean, if you have if P and Q and P, well, then it's got to be the case, the Q. So these fundamental laws of logic are not empirical generalizations. But if that's true, then the question is, how can we know the laws of logic if they can't be tested and measured scientifically? So there was a problem, and and so many went the way of what's called psychologism. Mm -hmm. And this carries up to our own day. And that just didn't make any sense to Husserl. I'll close by saying that his task was to develop a methodology in philosophy that told us how we know the things we know, mm-hmm. and that allowed for us to know things that were not within the bounds of the five senses. That was his great contribution, and he adopted a first-person approach to knowledge of logic or of the self or whatever that was the opposite of the empiricist who tended to adopt a third-person perspective on the world where, you know, you treat everything as an object and you measure it and play with it and do experiments on it. And your knowledge of it is is a third-person knowledge by studying it, whereas the first person is my approach from within myself and how, how things appear to me. So it wasn't relativism, but it was a very, very different shift, but it resulted from him, his willingness to do the hard work of saying to himself, you know what, I I don't think my colleagues are right about this, and I don't think the culture is right about this. This is just not commonsensical, and it doesn't make sense out of the things we know beyond the senses, and I'm I'm going to take a stand and go a different direction. Mm -hmm. That's what we need to be as Christians, I think. Mm -hmm. That is an excellent point. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, 
The College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. It's interesting you made that point, JP. I um, was going to circle back to, Jordan, what you mentioned in the opening about Husserl's observation about Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually yeah. quote a bit of, of of his work in the opening section of my dissertation addressing this because I was writing on the nature of abstract objects, which are not physical, and uh, was using a little bit of what he said uh, to JP's point of it's important to think about things in a different way and not just go with the flow. Uh, in fact, let me just read a little bit from that. Hmm. Early 20th century German society was one of the most advanced societies in the history of the world, yet it was this very society that committed many of the atrocities of World War II. How could this be? Well, Edmund Husserl observed these early storm clouds that led to Nazism, and he identified the fundamental reason and predicted the outcome that came to pass then in the Nazi concentration camps. He observed a shift in thinking among Germans due to some successes and advances made in the sciences, which resulted in a widespread belief that the only way to know something is through empirical verification or scientifically, quote-unquote. Therefore, anything immaterial is no longer something one can have knowledge of. And, of course, this led quickly to naturalism, that all, all, all there is is the natural realm. So when applied to humans, all science can prove is that we have bodies, so, therefore, we must be only bodies or essentially bodies. Yes. And so any view of human persons having souls and therefore possessing intrinsic value and worth have to be discarded logically. And it's just a small step from there to begin training human people in the brutal ways that the Nazis did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that's one of the places where he was so insightful and willing to go against the grain, even though everyone of his day seemed to think, well, of course, you know, this is the way it is now. And it's interesting, actually, uh, today there's some more issues going on. JP, I want to give you a chance to mention the book you've got coming out this fall, your your magnum opus, you you refer to it as, uh, that tries to address what it is to be a human person against the tide of naturalism. That's going to be a pretty important book. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, um, a professor friend of mine that was a former student, Brandon Rickabaugh, and I have a 400-page book coming out in September with Wiley Blackwell, which is uh, one of the top uh, two or three publishers in academic philosophy, and it's entitled uh, The Substance of Consciousness, A Comprehensive Defense of Substance Dualism, and it's uh, an attempt to provide the most thoroughgoing, rigorous defense of the soul's reality in print. And some of the reviewers have commented that there's nothing like it. It's a tour de force. And I, that's not a brag. I just, we spent years and years and years doing intense, exhausting research to, to prepare this book. But it is an attempt to lay out and update all the major arguments for the soul and answer the objections that have been raised against them turn the tide and address a number of uh, inadequacies of physicalists who hold that we're just our bodies or our brains. It, it is a 
the fruit of decades of my own life. And uh, Brandon specializes in this area. I think it's going to be a hard book to deal with. Mm -hmm. So this is not an unimportant issue. Mm -hmm. I think that this is just going to be another attempt to be a part of the team and and to toss an grenade out there, you know, Mm -hmm. and see what it it blows up. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. That's wonderful. So glad you've got that coming out. Mm-hmm. Finally. Yeah, that's right. Interestingly, as you're talking about how it's coming against culture, again, as Stan said, you wouldn't think that when we're talking about the early 20th century, that this would be a time when the kind of philosophy that Husserl establishes would actually thrive, but it does. And what's so cool about it, too, is that it attracted some of the brightest minds in the world at the time. Mm. It pulled people in. And they said, oh, I knew something was missing. Mm. Oh, I knew it didn't sound right. And as he continued on his scholarship, he then went on right at the turn of the century, right after he published The Logical Investigations, he went to Göttingen and spent the next roughly 20 years there. And it was there that he had some of the most productive years of his life as a scholar and met some of the most interesting people that would serve to really cross-pollinate his work in some really interesting ways. A really fascinating fact about the phenomenological movement, especially at that time, many of its founding members came to faith during their time studying phenomenology. And if they came to phenomenology already Christians, their expressions and experiences of faith were deepened in really significant ways. Are you familiar with Adolf Rennick? Uh, uh, Yes. I am not. So Rennick was Husserl's right hand from 1909 to 1914, and he was an excellent teacher. He was much more accessible and clear as a phenomenologist than Husserl and was tasked with teaching the courses that prepared the students for the heady teaching from Husserl. He assisted Husserl with revisions, including a very important revision of logical investigations, So Rennick really helped him shore up the gaps in places where he was struggling and gave him more tools to spread this message. And Rennick came to faith in Christ during this time, and faith became so important to him that he said he would teach philosophy exclusively as a means of leading men to the knowledge of God, which I think is pretty cool. Wow. He enlisted in the army in 1916, and he died in combat in the infamous Flanders Field Mm. in 1917. Wow. It was in working on the manuscripts that Rennick left and encountering the faith of his widow, Anna, that Edith Stein came to faith in Christ. Hmm. That's that. What a story. Isn't that amazing? Well, you never know. You never know the impact of something you say to somebody or you write, write something down Mm. or because mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't see it, but you we have literally no idea what what hap- might happen in three months from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's so important just to be faithful and and not be discouraged if you don't see something happen in someone's life immediately. Because because you know, told us a story of a lot of seed planting here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. JP, I think this would be a great time to jump in with what phenomenology is. Husserl said that if you approach the world from a scientific perspective and study everything from a third-person perspective, so that to know what a human is, you measure a human being and those kind of things, 
pointing out is the knowledge we gain from my own view. And so phenomenology was an attempt to develop a method of solving philosophical problems and making philosophical discoveries from a distinctive first-person point of view. And so Husserl said that phenomenology begins and ends in consciousness. And and what he meant by that was what you do is you what he called you bracket world and what it's supposed to be is according to what scientists tell us. So by bracket, you just set aside uh, the scientific story that the object you're you're looking at is almost entirely empty space. It's got particles in it that are going close to the speed of light, and and all the rest of it and. Uh, you just suspend that. To bracket it means you're just going to set that aside for a minute. And, and instead, what you're going to do is you're going to pay careful attention to what is the nature of objects as you experience them, and what is the nature of your experience of an object. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, he would take, let's say, an apple, and Husserl would you know observe the apple from say, five feet away, and he would notice that he had the distinct sense that his viewing of the apple put him in direct contact with the apple's surface. He was not seeing something inside of his own mind. He was seeing the surface of the apple. And as he walked closer to the apple, he noticed that new aspects of the apple came into view that weren't available earlier. For example, when he first started, he only saw the front surface apple, but now he might be beginning to see the part of the apple. And by paying careful attention to the nature of an apple as it is experienced, he came to the conclusion that physical objects, when we observe them, we become aware that there's always more to them than we're currently given in our experience. They have a backside to them, for example. There might be a top or it may be spherical, but there will be the aspects to this object as insofar as it's physical, that's more than I'm capable of seeing point of view right now. Now, he contrasted that with a thought. He said, when you pay attention to your own, a thought that you're having, you stop and you're having a thought about, you know, lunch is going to be in 60 minutes. When you attend to that thought, you become aware that there's no backside to it. The, mm-hmm. the entire thought is present to your conscious awareness all at once. Now, the thought may entail other things, like it may entail that there's a cafeteria or other things. But if you're just attending to the thought itself, it doesn't have a backside to it. And this was one of his arguments for why thoughts weren't physical, because physical objects, we know from the way we experience them, always have more to them than we're able to see at any given moment. But thoughts are different than that. They're they're fully given uh, when we attend to them. And then he, he went over the process of how we experience an object. I'll give you a quick example of this. I get a call at the university, and the bookstore says, JP, the book that you ordered uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's in uh, the bookstore. Okay, so now I've got a thought in my mind. And what Husserl said is this thought is a relatively empty thought. I have a concept, and it's the concept of a book that I ordered is in the university bookstore. 
Now, I, I don't remember what book I ordered, and I certainly don't know how many pages are in it. I don't know the, the, the color of the, of the cover. I don't know where in the bookstore it is. I, I don't know how much it cost, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't even know the subject matter. But I have a I have a vague enough understanding that I know what steps I need to take to verify this initial concept. For example, I know that this is talking about a book in the bookstore instead of uh, 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 my wallet that I left in the gym. So I don't go to the gymnasium. I, I approach the bookstore. And once I get in the bookstore, I go to the section of where it has faculty orders. And my eyes scan. And there I see a jacket that says Richard Swinburne. Minds, Brains, and Free Will. I think that's the book I ordered. Okay, now I, I, I pull it out, and then I can see the cover, and I see the color, and I open it up to the table of contents, and I see the topics that it that discovers. Now, what's happened is this entire sequence of events, from my initial sort of empty concept until the thing itself is present right before me, is called a fulfillment structure. And what that just means is these are the experiences that you would go through to verify a general sense that there's a book I ordered in the bookstore to having that actual book in all of its specificity present right before me through direct awareness. And those kinds of fulfillment structures occur with, let's say, knowing a law of logic. You have a general sense that there's a law of logic and, and in this what's written on the board, and you approach it and think more carefully, notice the premises and notice the conclusion. And all of a sudden, the law of logic itself is present to your immediate awareness. He called this eidetic awareness because it isn't using your senses. Hmm. You can do the same thing with hearing God's voice and all kinds of things. But the point is, he gave careful attention to the, the sequences of experiences we go through in coming to be aware of an object and, and to see if when the object is given to us, it corresponds to the, the idea we had of the object early on, and that's the correspondence theory of truth. So this was very, very important, and it really developed a, a rich understanding of how we go about experiencing all kinds of different objects, because he claimed that the, the path you go through to experience some entity is dependent on the nature of the entity itself. Mm -hmm. If it's sense perceptible, like an apple, fine. If it's the law of logic, you can't see those or touch. So you're, there's going to be a different sequence of experiences. Same with hearing God's voice. Uh, that's going to be different as well. And so by paying careful attention to your experiences of hearing God's voice or thinking you did and you were wrong, you can learn the processes that you go through to, to become aware that it is God speaking to you instead of just you talking to yourself. So this that was some of the benefits of phenomenology, and it adopted a, a distinctive first-person approach to the nature of objects insofar as we become aware of them and in our experiences of them. And then one other thing I'll mention, since the time of Descartes, even up until now, it is widely believed that we don't have any direct access to the external world. 
that that when I look at an apple, I don't see the apple. I see an image of the apple in my own mind. Or there is something in between me and the external world so that I can't get to it. Uh, and that could be my gender. This is called standpoint epistemology by postmodernists, mm. that I look at things from my unique standpoint in the world. And that will usually be my ethnicity, whether I'm male or female or transgender or whatever. And that does not allow me to see the world the way it is. And so what I end up doing is constructing reality. And I can't get outside of my construct and get out in the world to where the things are out there. And Husserl solved that by saying that our our experiences have intentionality, meaning that they're of things. And to have an experience of an apple is already to be out in the world. I don't have to get out in the world. You might say, well, it's 10 feet over there. How do you get over there? But that's in the mind like it's a physical object. To have an experience of the apple, you become aware that you're attending to the very surface of that apple itself and not something in your head. And so to have an experience is to already be out in the world itself. (sighs) And so this is just very important for the Christian faith. Yes. Yeah, that's a helpful summary of phenomenology. I appreciate you going going into that example just to illustrate it. Yeah. One of Husserl's more famous quotes is this, Philosophers, as things now stand, are all too fond of offering criticism from on high instead of studying and understanding things from within. Mm-hmm. That's it. I think that relates perfectly. And also, JP, I just have to say, I have recently read quite a bit about phenomenology, and that was much more clear than anything I read. So <laughs> I, you and your mind are a gift to us. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it, it really is, is uh, it's just learning to pay attention to our inner life and things that we can be directly aware of. Yep. Back to our conversation earlier about your work on the soul and, and um, the importance of that. I, I can know I'm a I'm a self that has a body that I'm more than my body just by being aware of my, my, my awareness that I'm a self that has a body. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I can know that love is real just by attending to my, my emotional state as I'm with a loved one. Absolutely. You know, Um, and I think it's especially helpful in, in, in our spiritual lives is we're training ourselves to be attuned to the Holy spirit uh, speaking to us. And, and that's again, part of our inner life that, Sometimes we aren't as able to tune into in our modern world. Now, it has to be said within the bounds of Scripture, of course, because mm-hmm. I think we can all go off the deep end hearing God say things that are contrary to Scripture. And, well, it must be true because I heard it. Well, no, <laughs> uh, that might have been a lot of other factors. The fact is that within the bounds of Scripture, we ought to be looking for, uh, in this sense of the word, times that God is directly present and speaking to us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I will say uh, phenomenology can go down a different road. I had a good friend in my doctoral program who was a, a phenomenologist who was a postmodernist, an anti-realist. Wow. And was using Husserl to to argue that all truth is self-determined by my inner impulses and, and what I take to be true. So, uh, you know, so you can't have an anti-realist stream also, but that's very different than what we're talking about here. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we said at the top, yeah, this impacted Sigmund Freud and John Paul II. So mm. we will maybe talk a little more in the next episode about how those paths diverge and what the key distinctions are between those two. Yeah. 
I think that'll be a really helpful conversation and we'll be able to kind of cover a little bit more of some of the work that Husserl did toward the end of his life and even the work that is still being done. Good. Very good. Good being with you. See ya. Bye-bye. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.